Well, good morning again. If you've uh, been around this place much or even just a part of church circles much, you've probably heard a phrase used some, to some degree, some fair amount, the image of God, the, the idea that men and women, uh, no matter their position, worldview, philosophy, religion, where they live, what their station in life may be, the idea that every man, woman, and child that has ever walked the face of this earth and ever will is made in the image of of God. Now, you also may be wondering, because oftentimes we say that and don't explain what we mean, I'm going to give you just a quick little synopsis of some of what that means. It's, it's a pretty profound uh, reality. Um, it means at least these two things. Let me just kind of break it down into two simple categories um, with a little alliteration. So, on the, on the one hand, to be made in God's image means that we have been made to represent Him as his creatures, amidst all the creatures, amidst his creation. We've been made to represent him on the one hand and have also been made to reflect him as well. So representing him, for instance, in the ancient Near East, this is where actually some of the wording and concept comes from. In the ancient Near East, kings were known to place statues, images of themselves at the borders of their nations to represent who it was sitting back on the throne in the palace, saying, this is my land, this is my country, this is my reign, this is my image. We have been made as image bearers in in a profound sense to represent the one who has made us and his rule and his interests in this world. So we've been made as representatives. We've also been made to reflect something of our creator as well. Sort of like mirrors to reflect what we're not the one. You put, you put, a, you put a mirror in front of you, the, the, what you're seeing is a reflection of the real you. We have been made to reflect something of the one in whose image we have been made. Reflect what? Reflect something of his character. Reflecting something of his interests, his desires in this world. We have, again, made this, these two simple categories, but profound what it means to be made in God's image to both represent him in this world and to reflect something of him in this world as well. And you start drilling down in the implications of that, and it is pretty, pretty deep, pretty profound. It is where we get our, our worth and value and dignity as human beings, the fact that we are made in God's image. Now, this is also something else worth pointing out, and that is that there is an image bearing that takes place not just individually, but corporately as well. Theologians have written about this for centuries. Oftentimes in the West, however, we focus in on just the individual reality in terms of how the, the one in whose image we've been made. But think with me. There's not a single person, not a single image bearer that can represent, reflect something of this great God by themselves. It takes all of the images in that will, in that sense, all the likenesses of God to represent and reflect anything of him. In fact, you could really make a case that it will take all of humanity for all eternity, to a degree, to represent and reflect him in any truth whatsoever. So it means that we need one another together in our imaging, in our likeness bearing, men and women, young and old, people from Every calling and culture and class and everything is required that we would faithfully, accurately, in any way at all, display God's image in this world. We need one another in order to do that. Well, this concept and this big, big, big concept I've just sort of teased you with is where we're going over the next few minutes in this third installment now in our, this series, this little mini-series on our new vision statement. And uh, I'm going to walk you through, as I have over the last several weeks, going to walk you through uh, the particular clauses of that. It's going to be on the screen there as well. Um, so the, the um, is it on the screen? Do we have the vision statement in there? In the announcements. Okay. Well, it, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's here on the front of your bulletin as well. Let's not get, I don't want to get sidetracked with that, but this is, 
the summary paragraph there, okay? And uh, if we can get it in there from the announcements, that'd be great too. But let me just keep going. Um, the summary sentence for the vision statement is simply this. Christ Presbyterian Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's the summary sentence. Now, from there, there is a summary paragraph unpacking, unfolding, extrapolating what that means. And that's what's there on the screen. Now, go back. Go back if you can. Um, The last slide is what we want. And it's also, that's the one that's on the front of the bulletin as well. And this is how it reads. We are a covenant family being transformed into the likeness of Christ, rejoicing in and displaying his truth, goodness, and grace, growing in love, service, and relationship to God and our community, for the glory of God and his kingdom, present and eternal. Now, you'll notice in that clause, in that, in that paragraph, there are bold words there, bold phrases. And in those bold, emboldened areas of that uh, paragraph, you then go just a little bit further, and those are explained in, 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 a, in another place within the vision statement as a whole. And it's, this is on the website and, and on the, in the newsletter as well. I don't think we have a slide of this this morning. Um, but this is how it reads unpacking that third line uh, where we're heading over the next few minutes, okay? That third line being rejoicing in and displaying his truth, goodness, and grace. This is where we're heading over the next few minutes. We were all created in the image of God. No matter your age, race, income, beliefs, or background, the gospel is for you. You are uniquely gifted by God, and we welcome you. The idea of the inherent image of God and his creation informs the way in which we consume and create, the way we give and receive, the way we listen and speak. We recognize there is no corner of creation that is unknown to God, and we are charged to bear and display his image to all of our spheres of influence. That's unpacking what it means to say uh, in the third line, rejoicing in and displaying his truth, goodness, and grace. And then going a little bit further from there, from that paragraph is then beautifully unpacked to flesh out the intent of that, just with some quick bullet phrases, sentences. We will pursue a beautiful community by welcoming people from all backgrounds, cultures, and ethnicities. We will meet you, whoever you are in life, wherever you are in life, as God has done for us. We will work and create with diligence and excellence. We will affirm the work of God and those around us. We will speak truth and love. This is our, our vision statement. Again, it's, it's on the newsletter, in the newsletters, it's on the website, it's on the Facebook page, uh, all, all the ways in which this is broken down. How is this seen in the Scriptures, you may be wondering? Is there any biblical justification for saying this is the direction we believe the Lord is calling us to go? Indeed, there, there is quite a bit, in fact. Uh, and so that's where we're heading here over these next few minutes. Um, we're going to Acts chapter 11 is our text. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. And that's what's on the screen there. If you want to find it in your Bible, this is the New Testament. This is after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you get the book of Acts. This is part two of Luke, the historian, Luke's two-part work, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Uh, Luke wrote both of these, and we're picking up in Acts chapter 11, an account of the formation of this church in Antioch, which is actually in Syria today. Um, Syrian Antioch is how it's oftentimes referred to, in fact, even in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Acts Acts 11, 19 through 26. Hear now God's word. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, 
for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, can we stop to pray for a moment? Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to be in your word together. Uh, Thank you for gathering us here this morning. Um, We are here and so are you. We are here and so are you. So are you. I am not the preacher. It is your Holy Spirit. We have no interest this morning here in this moment in becoming well-versed in the Word of man, but in the Word of God. And we need your help. We need your help. We are in desperate need of your help. Uh, I am in need of your help, even just to be able to lisp anything of any helpfulness and all of us here this morning, and any time we gather, on any topic, any passage, we are in desperate need of your work, your polishing, your sharpening, your honing, your refining, your chiseling, your healing, your comforting, uh, your befriending, you are loving, you are enlightening. We need all of that and more here at any time when we come to your word. And this is no exception. And so we ask for your help now. Would you bless, please, this time? We pray in your name. Amen. Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is a name that may be familiar to to some of you here. Uh, He was, I would argue, and I'm really one of no few, would say one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, Schaefer was a prolific author, a speaker, a pastor, and some have said, in in the right understanding of the word, something of a prophet as well, understanding the world and the culture and trends and where things were going. In one of his lesser-known books, it's a small book called Two Contents, Two Realities, he reflects upon the church at Antioch the church of which we were just reading about here in in Acts 11. And the the quote is there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. It's the the long one there at at the top. And I just want to read this to you. This is something what Francis Schaeffer is saying regarding that church there in the the early days of, of the church. My favorite church in Acts, and I guess in all of history, is the church at Antioch. I love the church at Antioch. I commend it to you to read again about it. It was a place where something new Happened. The great proud Jews who despised the Gentiles, there was an anti-Gentilism among the Jews, just as so often unhappily there has been anti-Semitism among Gentiles, came to a breakthrough. They could not be silent. They told their Gentile neighbors about the gospel, and suddenly on the basis of the blood of Christ and the truth of the word of God, the racial thing was solved. There were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians, and they were one. More than that, there was a total span of the total spectrum. We're not told specifically that there were slaves in the church of Antioch, but we know there were in other places, and there's no reason to think that there were not in Antioch. We know by the record in Acts that there was no less a person in that church than Herod's foster brother, the man at the very peak of the social pyramid and the man at the bottom of the pile met together in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were one in a beauty of human relationships. And I love it for another reason. There was a man called Niger in that church, and that means black. More than likely, he was a black man. The church at Antioch, on the basis of the blood of Christ, encompassed the whole. There was a beauty that the Greek and the Roman world did not know, and the world looked. And then there was the preaching of the gospel. In one generation, the church spread from the Indus River to Spain. 
if we want to touch our generation, we must be no less than this. Schaefer's right. Schaefer's absolutely right. Um, and while, and this is something no few commentators have, have said, scholars, New Testament scholars have said, historians have said, studying on this, is that while the church in Jerusalem certainly has much for us to emulate and learn from, ultimately, as you pay attention to the details of the text, in particular Acts 11, the church in the book of Acts that is meant to be our example, the church in the book of Acts that is meant to be our model, the church in the book of Acts, according to the Lord himself, as Luke has recorded it for us, that, is to, that we are to emulate, is not the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch, the church in, in Syrian Antioch. The way the text is written, the way it unfolds, the way the intentionality with which it has been passed down to us, the events and the, the record there, is making clear that the Lord has made clear his desire for his people. He's made clear in what you see here in the, the, the dynamics, the beautiful things, the astonishing, miraculous things that were taking place, world-changing, culture-changing things there in, the, in Antioch. The Lord has made clear his desire his passion for his people. We, as his people, should long and labor for that, what we know his desire and purposes to be. What we're seeing here, what we're seeing here, and the dynamics unfolding here as, as Schaefer's describing that with, with the, the, the person at the top of the social pyramid and the bottom of the pile and, and all of the racial divisions and cultural distinctions people from all walks of life being made one, being made one, and you see it coming to fruition, especially in this church, is not novel in the Bible. This is not a one-off. This is not just something, oh, that's weird, and you, you know, just ignore it as though it's you know, a footnote or something, but rather it is consistent with things that you see all through the Bible unfolding increasingly, in fact, in momentum as you move through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Consistent with principles and, and um, guidelines that we see from the very beginning to the very end, a consistency there. And to bear that out, to help us see that, I wanna go in an unusual direction here this morning. I'm not actually gonna be unpacking Acts 11 over the next few minutes. What I wanna do is help you see how the themes, what's happening there in Acts 11 in that church show up in other places. And just for time's sake, just for in three places is where we're gonna look. We can see how the prayer, three things. One, we can see how the, the, the dynamics, the wonder of what's happening in the church of Antioch is an answer to Jesus's very prayer. That's the first thing. The second thing is that is it was an anticipation of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and it is a realization of the vision of the Apostle John that he would have a few decades later. This consistent pattern that we see here with what's happening in Antioch with the prayer of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, and the vision of John. So first, the prayer of Jesus. Now, when I say that, by the way, I don't mean what you know, we oftentimes think of as the Lord's Prayer you know, found in Matthew and Luke. What I'm speaking of here is what's oftentimes referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer, as we find recorded for us in John 17. So I think we've got a slide for this. John 17, verses 20 through 26. This is the third part of a much longer prayer. We're just gonna read just this, this third of the three parts uh, together. Well, I'm gonna read it, and if you could just follow along. Uh, John 17, starting at verse 20 on through verse 26, this prayer of Jesus. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, just, a, just time, stop, pause. He's praying for us, okay? That's who he's praying for in this moment, you and I. All the disciples who were to believe because of the testimony of the original disciples. So if you wanna know how Jesus is praying for you, and for me, for us, his church, here it is. 
John 17, again, I'll start back in verse 20. I, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, he's speaking like, like in a future sense, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. If you're a believer in Jesus now, it's because Jesus prayed this. Think about that. Think about that, and accomplished it, brought it to fruition through the Spirit in your, in your life. Now, some backdrop. Some backdrop is critical here to, to think it before we go any further with understanding something of the particulars. The backdrop, who is praying this prayer? Who is praying this prayer? Now, there are a lot of great collections of prayers that we can use as instruction and, and even memorization, utilizing, you know, some of you, they're, they're great collections, you know, ancient and modern and, and everything in between. And, and they're worthwhile. And I can recommend some to you. But this is Jesus praying. This is the son of David, the son of God, praying that we have, and we have a record of his, of his very words passed down to us here. But it's not just that. It's not just who this is, but it's also when this is. When this is. And what is this moment? This, this moment is the night before his crucifixion, just hours before his betrayal and arrest. And this is, you know, this is not going to take him by surprise. He knows this is coming. And in that moment, you got to know there is a compression of your priorities, how you're going to pray in a moment like that. So we have who this is and how, and the moment that this is, that's your backdrop. Now the particulars. What does he pray? What does he long for? Well, just for time's sake, pressing in here, unity. Unity of his followers, not uniformity, not uniformity that we may all be all the same, but that we would all be one. Those are two very, very different things. That are uh, not uniformity, but unity. Unity based on, grounded in our identity, chiefly in Him. And this unity is a vis- it has to be a visible unity. I'll get to that in just a second. It has to be an observable unity if anyone's going to see it because he wants people to see it, and we'll talk about why here in a second. It has to be a visible unity. It has to be an observable unity. And it has to include how we do, yes, biblical conflict, how we do conflict biblically, conflict resolution. Yes, that's included in here, yes, but it doesn't stop there. And particularly in this context, and particularly thinking about how these disciples would have heard this, It's beyond that. Jesus is speaking here, praying for what we see realized in Antioch, where all the barriers of class, all the walls of culture, all the lines of color, distinct and important and real as they are, aren't the ultimate thing, but he is. But he is, and we are one. Now, why, why does he long for this? We see what he longs for here in the prayer, but if you pay attention to the phrasing, he tells us twice why he longs for it. As big a deal as this unity is to his heart, as great a space as it takes up in Jesus' heart and praying for it in this moment, that's actually not the end. It's the means towards an end. Did you catch that? Twice he says, that they may be one that the world may know. Twice he says that, that the world may know who I am and what I've come to do. Ultimately, that's really what he's saying. That the world may know by seeing their unity, 
Despite everything that otherwise would divide them, they are one in me that the world would see this and know who I am and what I've come to do. It's, it's a doxological diversity. There's a, there's a purpose behind it. There, it, it. This unity being a powerful proof of, demonstration of, apologetic, that is to say defense of, the reality of the gospel, that the world may know, that the world would see there's, there's something profound, something life-changing, otherworldly about this. So in the prayer of Jesus, coming back full circle, in the prayer of Jesus, what we're seeing here is the realization of that in the church of Antioch, just a few decades later, just a few decades later. Now, application. Well, we, we know that the church in Antioch, that the people of Antioch, that the, the culture of Antioch, the, the movers and shakers in Antioch, as we see this, you know, people being added and added and added, twice you see the mention of that in, in, in Acts 11. Uh, how did they know? How did they know that there was some, how would people know here, here in Clarksville, Middle Tennessee, how would they know that we are followers of Jesus? Well, yes, John 13 says, and we must not ignore this, John 13 says, they will know you are mine, my followers, by how you love one another. That's right, that's what John 13 says. But here in John 17, it shifts it just a little bit not just love for one another, but unity with one another that defies all the categories that the world will want to impute upon us. And this is his desire, again, this is Jesus' desire, and if indeed we are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, it has to be our desire as well, by extension, if in fact we are his followers. His desire must be ours, and therein it has to be pursued intentionally, actively, passionately, because we know who wants it. And we also know with it, about anything else in our lives of any importance, if we don't pursue it intentionally and actively, passionately, it's not going to happen. Jesus has made clear his desire for his people we must long and labor for this. And we see this with the prayer of Jesus being fulfilled there in Antioch. Okay, second point. Again, I hope you can see this, uh, that, that this is not a one-off, that we see this also coming up in the teaching of Paul, in particular the book of Ephesians. So if you wanna follow along, we're going to the book of Ephesians. Not quite, we're not gonna read the entire book, don't worry. Although that would be worthwhile. Um, but in, in the book of Ephesians, a major theme of the book, when you really pay attention to what Paul is saying here, the, the implications, the, the, the impact of the finished work of Christ uh, is, in fact, this, this unity. Now, again, something of a backdrop. Paul's ministry, who, by the way, is mentioned in Acts 11, but he was described as Saul at the time. This is before he took on this new name as Paul. But uh, So he's already been mentioned here. But uh, this, this letter written to a group of believers, Christians in the city of Ephesus, as Paul is in prison, he's writing this letter. We'll talk about that, that imprisonment here in just a bit. But he's writing uh, to the church in Ephesus, and this, this, the theme here is striking. But let me give you some backdrop. So Paul, Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, Okay. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was among the first, not the first, but among that first wave to go forth, crossing the cultural barriers and lines that, that were so uh, prevalent and, and obvious in, in those days. He, he goes to the nations with a message for the nations that in Christ, people from all peoples can be one in Christ and one another, okay? This is his message. This is his message. And he caught a lot of flack for that. You see that in the book of Acts. And it's implied in some of his letters as well. Paul's ministry, 
Some backdrop there. Now, Paul's message. Here's where we're getting a little closer here to what we're seeing in Ephesus, in Ephesians, rather. He writes a lot about, I encourage you, if you've got some software or something, like just punch in mystery, this word mystery, and how many times it pops up in Paul's letters, in particular in the book of Ephesians, this theme, the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel. Now, this is not mystery like Scooby-Doo or Agatha Christie, you know, something that's been hidden that has to be discovered. It's rather something that's been unveiled, something that was concealed that's now being revealed. That's what, in the New Testament, what it means how Paul uses this mysterion, the word we translate mystery, that's what he means when he uses that, that language, something that was concealed that's now revealed, okay? We, we don't have to search out clues. It's been given to us. It's been shown to us. It's been made plain to us. So that's, what, that, that's the backdrop. So how many, where, where do you see this? Well, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, picking up midway through a much longer sentence, a much longer string of arguments and points that Paul is making here regarding what God has done for us in Christ. And I'm kind of picking up here, right there in the middle of all that in verse 9. Among all of that, God has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, we're talking about a cosmic reconciliation here. All things, that's the mystery. The mystery has been revealed. This thing that the, in the gospel has been revealed for any who would have ears to hear and eyes to see, that in Christ all things are being made one. In the fall, all things splintered apart. In Christ, all things being made one. But that's not where he stops. You might be, well, that's kind of vague. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul presses in a little harder. Got it, yeah, we got that slide too. Verses 1 to 6. And you're going to see this word mystery. It's going to come up, I think, three times in here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, and here he interrupts himself, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive of my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now you're, okay, finally, what is it? Here it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's this thing that in the gospel has been revealed. And this is a major theme. It's an emphasis of Paul's teaching, in particular here in this letter, that in Christ all peoples can be made one in him and through him and yet at the same time with one another. The Jew-Gentile divide, we just cannot get our heads around this in terms of understanding how significant that was in that culture, in that time. I mean, my gracious, you had barriers in the temple itself physical barriers to symbolize and help people understand Jew and Gentile alike of these barriers. It's, one author I saw this, was reading this passage put it this way, that this barrier, the Jew-Gentile barrier, the wall between these two races of people was the archetype, the, the greatest of, of all the divisions that, that has ever been in the history of man. But in Christ, that comes down. That comes down because of Christ. And that mystery is what is being revealed here in the gospel. Paul refers to it as the mystery, the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery, the, mus the mysterion. But there's one more place that's worth noting in the book of Ephesians, and it's really profound and quite thought-provoking that is worth going to now. And it's in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 
And this is in the context, if you've read anything of the book of Ephesians, you know that it's towards the end, and it is in chapter 6, where Paul uh, begins to discuss, explain uh, the, the, the reality, the reality of the real enemy that we have, Satan, and the reality and the necessity of our understanding what spiritual warfare is. And in that context, as, as he's flowing through that in chapter 6, he then begins to talk about prayer, and then he asks for prayer, okay? And that's where we pick up halfway through verse 18, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. To that end, so he's just mentioned prayer, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, that kind of, okay, take a step back and hear what he's saying. Hear why he's asking for prayer. Why is Paul asking for courage? Why is he in prison? He tells you. Because of his preaching on this mystery that in Christ, all peoples, not just the gospel, that's not what he says. He says it's preaching the mystery of the gospel. The reality that in Christ, we can be one. And for that, because of that, Paul stirred up the animosity and opposition of Satan and the opposition and animosity of men, and that's why he's in jail. And that's why he's asking for courage to keep preaching, to keep proclaiming this message and not back off. So this is the emphasis of his message, and he's also making it very clear. There's a resistance to this message, a frightening resistance to this message, then and now. So again, this church in Antioch, back to that, we see what's happening there is a... Is a uh, the answer, the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. And we see what's happening in Antioch also because it's not a one-off and it is our example that we ought to be following and emulating our model. It's also fully in line with what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. It is an essential part, this mystery of the gospel, as Paul describes it and explains it. It is an essential part of Paul's message, of his teaching, which means, as disciples... We have to hold to it, okay? This is, this is an essential part of the, the apostles' teaching and preaching, his proclamation, which means we need to hold to it. But also, he also speaks of this resistance, which means we have to expect it. So we have something to hold and something to expect. Something to hold and something to expect. And, and, and why? Why is Paul, again, telling us that we should expect this? Because, uh, again, Satan doesn't want anything testifying to the reality of the gospel, testifying to the finished work of Jesus, testifying that in him all those walls can come down. He would much rather see all those walls up. That's one front where that, that animosity and hostility comes, but there is another one. And it's the idols of our hearts. Any false hopes, any false gods, any lesser desires and things that we would trust ourselves in, anything other than Jesus that we would find our identity in is an idol. And our idols, when they are threatened, rage. And that's true across the board, whatever we're talking about, whatever we're talking about. The lust of my heart, the discontentment of my heart, the jealousy, the bitterness of my heart, all the things, all the stuff, all the desire for comfort, all the desire for ease, all the desire for approval. Nothing wrong with those things. However, they become idols. And when you poke my idols, when you hit the nerve of my idols, my idols rage. And it's no less true here when we find our identity in our people group or our genealogy or our background or our history or our class, our cultural ethnicity, whatever it is, whatever it is, and whatever it may be for you. If that's where your identity is and you get that nerve, push, Idols rage. Emotions get hijacked. Conversations get shut down and positions get hardened. And Jesus says, no, my people. That's not what I came for. I came to make you one. 
came to make you one. He's made clear his desires for us. We should long and labor for this. And again, that we would see that this is not a one-off, the church in Antioch, this weird little sect, you know, in Syria. Well, nothing good happens in Syria, right? (laughs) I know, Bo, hang in there. (laughs) Um, But rather, it's a church for us to emulate and, and to be our model and example. We have the vision of John, the vision of the apostle John. So Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Gracious sakes, what a powerful picture this is. Listen to what the Apostle John says, what he saw. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now, maybe a little backdrop is helpful here too. So, uh, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this vision? Well, it's safe to say that, that so the, the source we know is, is Jesus. Jesus, the risen, reigning, resurrected, exalted king over all principalities and powers, the king of the kings and the lords of the lords, the alpha and the omega, the everything. He is giving John, his servant, in exile on the island of Patmos in the late first century, this vision. This vision of himself and the reality and the assurance of his return. And the point behind that, I'm kind of giving you a big 10,000 foot summary of the book of Revelation. The point behind that is to steal his people because they are facing such intense pressure to compromise, to give in to heresy to capitulate to the increasingly intense persecution that they were facing at the time. And his desire clearly for us then and now is to fortify, to help us hang on, to, to have our eyes set upon the horizon of his sure return and to press on with that in mind, to stay faithful and be true to him with that in mind. And then comes with that, part of that is this vision of this vast multitude. You know, part of what we, is, is we're awaiting and his coming is what John is seeing here in this vast multitude. Now note the way he describes the congregation, the general assembly. Note how he describes them here. With all their distinctions still in place, eternally still in place. All the cultures and all the colors are still there. Nothing's been muted. Nothing's been drowned out. It's just that they're one crying out in one song with one voice to their hour, one Savior. It's a beautiful picture. And friends, it's coming. It's coming. And Antioch was but a foretaste of that, a preview of coming events. I remember being at a, at a presbytery meeting years ago up in downtown Chicago and we were meeting in a Roman Catholic church that had been purchased by a Presbyterian church plant. It was a really interesting you know, place to meet for a Presbytery meeting. And I mean, the, the, the walls, these gorgeous, huge, high stone carve, carvings in the walls and, and the marble floors, the acoustics were just stunning. And I know that because we sang. And, and we were meeting that evening, that first evening, with a group of Korean brothers from another presbytery. And there we are in this Roman Catholic sanctuary with all of its beautiful, ornate architecture and artistry and artisanship, and then joined together, with the, united in these voices, and it, it, it just took my breath away. That was a foretaste. That was a, that, that was, that was a foretaste. Friends, Revelation 7 is where this train is going. Revelation 7 is where this train is going. And it is not a segregated, separated out kingdom. And the challenge for us is to recognize that we need to get ready for that. That the kingdom of God is not a segregated kingdom. Now, I know the temptation here is to, is to move into this thought pattern. I know the temptation. I know it very well. I've felt it myself at times. To just say... That, but isn't that a future thing? 
right? Isn't that just a future vision that we're just going to have to wait for? Because what we're used to, of course, is predominantly one color, predominantly another color, predominantly another class and, or calling or whatever it is, and we're kind of segmented, separated all, all out, right? And that's what we're used to. That's what our experiences is, and we just assume, well, that's, I guess, the way it's supposed to be. Is that in any way the picture we get in Acts? Is that in any way the picture we get in Revelation 7? Is that in any way the picture we get in Ephesians or in Jesus' prayer or even in the prophets? Let me, if I can just put the question this way. You and I, I, I know we would never say when it comes to our own personal character, well, I know what Jesus has in mind for me in the future, but for now, I guess I'm just gonna have to be as it is. The status quo is just gonna have to be what I'm gonna have to settle for. Holiness will have to wait. Would you say that? As a, as a real follower of Jesus, Lord, I say this literally, Lord, I hope not. We would never say that about ourselves as individuals, nor can we say that about the church as a whole. That that's just, that, that future vision, that future thing is just something that's off there. No, rather, rather our prayer should be, help me hang on while I wait. No, our prayer should be, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be our prayer. That should be our passion such that the watching world around us because of what we, they see amidst us and between us and in us, even if in some poor way moving in that direction, is to call us Christians like they did in Antioch because they recognized they had no other label for them but oh, I guess you're followers of this Jesus guy. They couldn't think of another thing to call them. Would that be true of us? That the world couldn't think of anything else but to call us. He's made clear his desire, oh, that we would live that out. I, I, I was talking about Francis Schaeffer quote uh, earlier. I want to um, come back to the very last sentence, the very, very last sentence of what Schaefer read, uh, wrote there, uh, read earlier. In one generation, the church spread from the Indus River to Spain. If we want to touch our generation, we must do no less than this. Okay, so moving from one favorite of mine, Schaefer, to another, Tolkien. Okay. I'm not sure who wrote more. Probably Tolkien, now I think about it. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Some of you may know the story, uh, the, the idea being that the ring must be taken to Mordor and destroyed, the survival, the very survival, the hopes and dreams of everything Middle Earth depends on this, but it's going to take the strength of men and wizard and the hardiness of dwarf and elf and whatever it is that the hobbits have to bring to the table to pull this off, Okay. Um, very early on, though, as the fellowship is being called together, brought together, Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf start arguing these grievances that they have. And they're arguing and they're disputing over which one of their races was responsible for the collapse of the alliance and the friendship so far back in their history. And Gandalf, who, by the way, is the one you always need to listen to, says, I've heard both and I will not give judgments now, but I beg you to, Legolas and Gimli, at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. Ah, they needed one another. They didn't even know that. Gandalf needed them, but they needed one another. They didn't even know that. And as the story unfolds, spoiler, as the story unfolds, their respect for one another grows as well. And there's something of all that in this dynamic of these passages we've been looking at here this morning and so many others we could. This theme of a larger world that is desperately needing a smaller few to set aside whatever would divide them for the sake of a much greater mission. What would that mean for us? Uh, I've been talking at 10,000 feet for the last little bit, maybe a lot of bit. 
just for a couple minutes, if you'll indulge me, just kind of getting closer to the ground, just to just let you know regarding the vision statement. So right now, just so you know, the session is talking about some suggestions handed down, offered to us, suggestions given to us by the General Assembly to consider local churches, how to roll these things out. What would it mean to, to be a, like the church in Antioch, I guess you could say, something like that. Uh, so ask for your prayer as that conversation, that discussion unfolds. Uh, something else, though, I would say, just, just five, I'm gonna give you five words. Five words. I'm not gonna explain them. This may make you crazy. I'm gonna give you five words um, to ponder. Five words I came across from another author this past week that I think are really helpful here to consider and pray over and contemplate, even if they trouble you. And maybe if they trouble you to contemplate them all the more. The five words are this, love. Listen. Lament. Learn. Leverage. It's five words. Love. Listen. Lament. Learn. Leverage. I'm not going to explain those. I just want you to think about it a little bit. I can talk about them if you want a little bit later. Um, but, you know, the reality is, no matter what direction this goes, it will not be easy. Substantive change never is easy or immediate. If it's going to mean anything at all, it will take prayer and ongoing dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I can promise you that. But I can promise you something else. It will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Let's pray together. Lord, would you capture our hearts by what we saw, see, unfolding there in Syrian Antioch so many years ago in that powerful testimony to the reality of the gospel and the Mysterion. May it be here to such a degree that even if we had no sign out front and people had no way of knowing, they would know we are followers of you. Oh, would you help us to join with you, Jesus, in your prayer there in John 17 to submit ourselves under Paul's teaching and the priority that we see there that our own vision would be set by the vision of the Apostle John. Grabbing hold of our very hearts, would you unite us in this that the world may know? We pray in your name. Amen.